Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 4 Bridgman ordered a stand too, an hour before dawn on the second day, and moving about in the dim half-light he felt the pleasant contact of clammy dew-laden air brushing his face and hands. Isolated shots and short bursts of machine-gun fire broke the silence at intervals, and the sound came from every direction except the south. The still open hand of the German army was closing round the division as it lay in its temporary perimeter awaiting the arrival of the 4th Parachute Brigade and the remainder of the glider element. He found himself hoping that the grip would not become unbreakable by the time they were ready to move into Arnhem. The Pathfinder Company was inside the perimeter for it had still to bring in the 2nd lift and until that was done it could play no part in defence or attack. Bridgman took out his platoon roll and laid it on the rough parapet in front of him. The names, set out in their solid squares, inspired him with a feeling of confidence. 
Lieutenant Bridgman, Sergeant Nash, Private Bilting, Private Dwyer, Private Brogan. Number four section. Sergeant Leyland, Corporal Marsden, Lance Corporal Hudson, Private Lavery, Private Wilcox, Private Cowper, Private Gregory, Private McGrath, Private Keeley, Private Adams, Private Chambers, Private Wallace. Number five section. Sergeant Blake, Corporal Heibling, Lance Corporal Cobbled, Private Hardy, Private Ewing, Private Matthews, Private Jennings, Private Butcher, Private Stewart, Private Taylor, Private Bignall, Private Sadler. Number six section. Sergeant Gorman, Corporal Armstrong, Lance Corporal Summers, Private Woodley, Private Stores, Private Cummings, Private Lydon, Private Fraser, Private Jarvis, Private Mocock, Private Chamberlain, Private Norfolk. Headquarters section. Sergeant Murray, Corporal McEwen, Lance Corporal Manning, Private Walk, Private Bowbrow, Private Muldoon, Private O'Neill, Private Edwards, Private Bannum, Private Waterson, Private Black and Private Cassidy. He drew a line through Matthew's name and wrote killed alongside it. He looked at the other names on the roll, wondering how many would be scored through before the action was over. At present, the roll looked good, the proof that he had over 50 first-class troops under his command. An hour after dawn, he stood the men down and posting sentries, he went to company headquarters while his men ate from their 48-hour packs and cleaned their weapons against what the day might bring. There were no fresh orders. So far as the pathfinders were concerned, everything was still going according to plan. At 0800 hours, he moved his platoon out of the company area and retraced his footsteps of the night before. The company of South Staffs were no longer in the position they had been occupying. The second break from the original plan had been made. The Midland Battalion was fighting its way into Arnhem to reinforce those parachute battalions, which were still held up far from their objectives by the tanks and grenadiers of the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions, of whose presence Allied intelligence had not known. As this platoon crossed the railway line and moved down to the wood, Alan pieced together the scrappy information and the more probable bits of rumour he had picked up. In the area of the landing and dropping zones, all was going according to plan. With the exception of the South Staffs, the glider troops were in their pre-arranged positions. The second lift would not be opposed at close quarters, but in the town of Arnhem things were not going well. The German prisoners now being filtered back to the divisional area were strange line of communication troops, for they included elements of the crack Waffen-SS, commanded by General Willy Beatrich, and highly trained NCOs from the SS school for junior leaders. Alan turned to his platoon sergeant as they entered the north end of the long wood they had quit the previous evening. It's almost like coming home, he said, but I think we'd better put out a line of beaters. Snipers could have infiltrated during the night. Nash called up the rear section and ordered its riflemen out in front, and the platoon advanced more slowly behind the extended screen. The platoon sergeant was unusually quiet, and Alan asked him why. Nash hesitated for a few moments, as if reluctant to put his thoughts into words, and when he did, Alan detected a sharp and puzzled note in his voice. It was as if the sergeant had suddenly become aware of something he felt he should have known all the time, and was wondering why he had not seen it before. Words came from him, at first slowly, then in a flood. "'I've been thinking, sir,' he said, turning and looking at Bridgman, his brow puckered in a rare frown. I hope to Christ I'm wrong, but I reckon this operation is all to cock. Whoever dreamed it up must have been bomb happy. It seems funny to be saying this now when everything seems to be going so well, but I can almost see the reaper reaching out to gather in the div. I never thought of it back in England during the briefings or while we were waiting on the airfields. It all seemed so pat, but I've got a feeling in my water that somewhere along the line, someone very inconveniently forgot about the Germans. I was looking at the map at Stantu this morning, Arnhem is such an obvious place for regrouping. 
Nijmegen, Eindhoven and Grava are too near the front. I'd bet a month's leave that by the time the second drop is ready to move, there'll be so much stuff between us and first para that we'll never link up. Bridgman was surprised to find Nash thinking along the same lines as himself. His view had been arrived at in England as a result of what he hoped was logical thinking, but he realised that Nash had the old soldier's instinct for a phony situation, not felt until actually in battle. They had nearly reached the southern edge of the wood, and Alan spoke quickly while he still had the time. Have you said anything of this to the others? No, sir. To tell you the truth, I wasn't sure what I thought myself till I heard myself saying it, but now that I have, I think I'm right. If it's any conclusion, I think you're right too. I wish to God I didn't, but for Christ's sake, don't mention your opinion to anyone else. We don't want any of them looking over their shoulders. Alan halted the platoon, and from the cover of the wood, he, Nash, and the section commanders looked out onto the dropping zone on which the 1st Parachute Brigade had landed the day before. For the second lift, another 200 gliders were to land on the discarded chutes which carpeted the vast field. They saw no sign of movement. Bridgman was reluctant to send the signallers out into the exposed field to set up the Eureka, but he wanted it clear of the wood so that its beam would not be screened by the trees, and he spent a long time searching the ground. He spotted what he wanted and sent for the two men who were to operate the set. A long and apparently thick wood lay some 200 yards to the south of where he stood. All the ground between was open field, but halfway across and under 100 yards to their right lay a mound of dung, about four feet high and seven or eight feet square. He pointed it out to the signallers and told them they were to erect their set on the near side, keeping the heap between themselves and the far wood. He checked the frequency on the Eureka and when he was satisfied, he turned to his section commanders and ordered up all Bren groups and two-inch mortars. He personally laid down a field of fire for each group and ordered that should the signallers be fired on as they crossed the open ground, the gunners were to concentrate their own fire in slow bursts at ground level along the edge of the wood opposite. He brigaded the mortars in a small clearing and instructed them to lay smoke between the wood and the platoon, but only on his order. He called up two more signallers and had them lie down under cover to his right. When he was satisfied, he sent the section commanders back to their sections with orders to give more covering fire if it became necessary. Nash looked from Bridgman's face, set and tense, to the faces of the two signallers who were waiting for the order to make their hundred-yard dash to the pile of dung. It was probable that the wood opposite was unoccupied, and Nash had to suppress a wave of impatience at the meticulous care with which Bridgman went about the job of placing his covering parties. He was honest enough to realise that most of his irritation was caused by the natural resentment felt by a professional who sees an amateur doing a better job than he would have done himself. He knew that had he been in command, he would have placed the Eureka just clear of the wood's edge and that even if he had decided on the dung heap of shelter, the signals would have already been on their way, covered by a Bren group. From there on, he would have acted off the cuff, dealing with each situation as it arose. He knew that Bridgman had decided that the Eureka should be in the centre of the field where it could be the most effective and suffer the least interference from the surrounding woods, that he was making every possible preparation to get it there and, if necessary, was literally going to shoot the signallers into position. It was this foresight, this preparedness for every eventuality, that compensated for what Nash considered a dangerous tendency on Bridgman's part to undertake tasks other than those specifically ordered. Watching the elaborate preparations being made to cover their run into the dung heap, one of the first two signallers turned to the Lance Corporal, who was to accompany him, and laughed, How does it feel to be a VIP? The Lance Corporal looked at the dung heap quizzically. 
I don't know about VIPs, he said. I think we're just going to be dropped in the shit. Bridgman grinned and glanced quickly round to ensure that everyone was in his right place. He spoke quietly and at once the two men were out of the wood, running steadily towards the isolated pile of manure. They had covered about 20 yards when the Germans opened fire. Edwards dropped at once and Lance Corporal Manning checked in his stride and turned as if to assist him. The platoon's Brens had opened up simultaneously, barely a second after the Germans had opened fire. Bridgman and Nash had dropped to cover at the first shot, but now Alan was on his feet again, shouting to the Lance Corporal, Keep going, damn you, keep going! Manning hung for what seemed an eternity, half stooping over Edward's body. Then he turned and sprinted for the dung heap. He was 15 yards short of it when the Spandau burst hit him. His legs sprawled out like a horse landing heavily in the Grand National. He sank on his wide-apart knees, and Alan could see him fumbling blindly at the Eureka set as he tried to get the telescopic aerial out. But he died before his fingers found it. Bullets were cutting the branches and twigs on each side of Alan, and he dropped back into his place alongside Nash. The big sergeant was firing carefully aimed rifle shots at the eastern end of the thick wood, where he thought he had spotted the muzzle flash of a German gun. Alan waited as Nash fired another shot, then grabbed him by the arm. Go back and take charge of the mortar group. Get three of them laying smoke. The fourth can drop some HE in the wood. When it's thick enough, I'll send the other two. As Nash slipped back through the undergrowth, Alan jumped up and doubled to where he'd left his headquarter group. He grabbed the 42 set and called up the CO. By the time Jordan came on the air, Alan had his map out and had worked out the map reference of the German-occupied wood. He explained the situation briefly and asked for instructions about clearing the wood before the gliders came in. He switched to receive and waited for Jordan to reply. There was a pause, then the CO's voice came over clearly. When your Eureka is in position, you will take no further action except in defence of the set and your own immediate area. The map reference you have given me has been reported clear. The enemy must have infiltrated back. I'll get someone onto it right away. I'll contact you as soon as I know something for sure. Jordan paused again, then continued. Remember, Alan, no further action from your platoon other than returning fire. There is 200 yards of open ground between yourself and whatever forces in that wood. If there's no one else available, you may have to clear it, but you'll do nothing till you hear from me. Alan got to his feet. The section commanders had ordered a ceasefire the moment Manning had been hit. With nothing specific to aim at, they were disinclined to waste ammunition. Alan stopped at each section and gave them fresh orders as he made his way back to where he'd left the second pair of signallers. As he sank down beside him, the first mortar bombs landed 50 yards short of the far wood. The gaps thickened up so quickly that he decided Nash was firing one of them himself. He spoke to the two signallers. Leave your haversacks here, but take your water bottles with you. Go flat out till you reach Manning. Decide now which one is going to pick up the Eureka and whoever it is must keep in front so that if he's hit or fails to grab it, the other one will know. You've got a 38 set with you, but don't use it unless you have to. Any questions? They had none. They slipped their haversacks off and raised themselves on one knee. Alan gave the word and they started to run, their weapons on their left shoulders and their heads up and back, one of them a pace or two in front of the other. The Germans were firing random shots and the occasional burst through the smoke, but it was unaimed fire and as the signallers broke from cover, the platoon's Brens had again opened up on the wood opposite them. Alan watched the leading man snatch up the Eureka set, hardly checking in his stride as he reached down and grabbed it and then the two men had flung themselves down behind the dung heap. Bridgman continued to watch them. They lay still for some moments, recovering their breath, and then first one of them and then the other sat up, 
He saw the tripod and aerial erected, and one of the signallers gave him the thumbs-up sign to indicate that the set was operating and in good order. The two men were sitting with their backs to the heap, confident that seven or eight feet of wet dung would stop any small arms fire. A movement to Alan's right attracted his attention, and he saw that Leyland and one of his men had taken advantage of the smoke to get to Edwards. Now they were staggering back, supporting his weight beneath them. Nash rejoined him, and looked with satisfaction to where the two signallers sat, for all the world like sunbathers on a beach. Turning to Bridgman, he saw a frown on his platoon commander's face. "'What's up?' he asked. "'We got them there all right, didn't we?' Alan gave a wry grin. "'Yes, they're there all right.' But we forgot to tell them to dig in. It'll never even occur to them. Have you ever known a British soldier dig in unless he was given a direct order? Nash grimaced. He thought Bridgman was carrying anxiety a bit too far. No, sir, I don't suppose they will. But is it really necessary? He looked at his watch. It's 9.30 now. The second drop's due in an hour. I should think that dung heap would stop anything. It'll stop anything that's fired at it, but that's not the point. In the first place, the Jerrys may have spotted them getting there. In the second, their aerial is sticking up above the heap. I can see it through my glasses. The Germans are no further away from them than we are. If they decide to mortar them, all the dung in the world won't stop mortar bombs from landing this side of them. Get back and try to raise them on the 38 set. Tell them they've got to dig in, if only deep enough to get themselves below ground level. Now he reorganised his platoon positions and made sure the men were digging shallow trenches deep enough to protect them from ground bursts and small arms fire. He returned to his headquarters to find that Nash had raised the signallers on the 38 set but had not yet heard from the CO. He joined the medical orderly, Brogan, who was attending to Edwards. The wounded man was very white and his eyes were closed. How is he? Brogan shook his head and turned his mouth down at the corners. He's got two bullets through the belly, sir. The lower one came out but not the top one. He may have a kidney wound but I can't be sure. We've contacted Company HQ and with any luck, there'll be someone down from 181 Field Ambulance to pick him up. If not, we can grab someone from 133 Para Field Ambulance when they arrive. They're coming down on this LZ, aren't they, sir? Alan nodded. Yes, they are, but you'll have to move him back 100 yards or so, past the bend in the ride. If a cheap ambulance comes blinding down from 181, Jerry will knock seven kinds of hell out of them. And they won't be in such a hurry to come round the next time we're in trouble. Get him round the corner of the ride so you can stop anyone before they come into the open. Leave a man with him, and then come back here. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Dwyer, the signaller on the 42 set, called Bridgman over. Jordan was at the other end, his voice matter-of-fact as he asked for a situation report. Alan told him the Eureka was in position and that they would be able to throw the smoke canisters far enough out on the LZ to give the pilots the wind direction. Then he switched to receive and waited for what the CO had to tell him. The signaller held the code sheet in front of Alan as Jordan spoke. It covered only place names and units. A Company, the Border Regiment, are already moving from northwest of Heelsom to clear up your little spot of trouble. I imagine you'll hear them pretty soon. The moment they report it clear, I'll let you know. Don't worry too much about recognition signals. If the pilots can't see 2,000 shoots on the ground, nothing much you can do will help them. Just make sure the Eureka's working. Bridgman went along his section positions, chiving his men to dig harder. He knew exactly how they felt. It was possible that within an hour or so they would be moving out and digging trenches with small entrenching tools while encumbered by their excessive equipment was enough to make the most even-tempered man irritable. He moved to the southwest corner of the wood where he had drunk tea with Phil Ramsden and his sergeant yesterday. From the cover of a thick bush, he studied the wood opposite him through his glasses. He could see no movement, but that meant nothing. The Germans might have moved out or they might still be there. He would know shortly when the company from the border regiment arrived. He looked at the dung heap. The two signallers were digging steadily, for, feeling more exposed than the rest of the platoon, they were not so reluctant to get below ground. A sudden burst of firing to the west made him swing his glasses in that direction. He could see nothing. The firing was coming from inside the wood, and he lay with his head cocked, picking out the different weapons in action. There were scattered shots from British and German rifles, sharp bursts from Schmeisses and Stens, and then a Spandau opened up, its terrific rate of fire making each shot barely distinguishable from the one that followed it. A Bren answered, and the other weapons ceased their orchestration as if a conductor had suddenly silenced them with his baton. For what seemed a long time, he listened to the quick brr-brr of the Spandau and the steady rat-tat-tat of the Bren as it replied. And then there was silence, a silence which hung in the air like a pause before the finale. There was a sudden rush of new fire and faint shouts reached the ears of the listening men. 
Nash dropped down alongside Bridgman, who asked, as if the question were purely academic, which was the last to fire? I'm damned if I can be sure. Nash frowned as he looked through his glasses. I'm not sure either. It's funny how you can be listening for just that thing, and yet when it happens, you're never absolutely certain which it was. Whichever gun had fired the last burst had won the machine gun duel. If it had been the Bren, then they might well expect the clearing of the wood to be proceeding at some speed. But if the Spandau had been the winner, they could anticipate a short hold-up while the enemy gunner was winkled out of his position, or killed in it. Alan spotted a slight movement on the fringe of the wood, about a quarter of the way up from the far end. He steadied his glasses on the place and was able to pick out the barrel of a rifle extended outside the screening of the trees. From its foresight hung a camouflage veil. The Bren had won. The men from the border regiment were carrying out meticulously the drill for wood clearing. Somewhere to the rear, whoever was directing the operation would see the signal and know how far up the wood the leading beaters had reached. Alan left Nash watching the wood and under cover of the trees strolled back parallel with the ride. Round the bend and hidden from view, Edwards lay on a patch of dark grass. Squatting by his side was the Dubliner, Muldoon, who had deserted from the Free State Army to enlist in the British. Privately, Alan was of the opinion that Muldoon would have enlisted as quickly in the German army if it had been in any way possible. Unlike the European Jews in the company, Muldoon was not fighting for a cause. He was not, in fact, overfond of the English, and he had never given serious consideration to what the war was being fought about. He was where he was because he hated the thought of there being a fight and he not in it. Alan could now see clear to the top of the wood, but there was no sign of any vehicle from the field ambulance. He spoke to Muldoon. Has he regained consciousness at all? He has not, sir, and I'm thinking he never will. At least not in this world. Well, if he does, you're not to give him any morphia. He's had one injection already. I will not, sir. The idea of sticking a needle in anyone turns my stomach as sour as a flat Guinness in the heat of summer. Alan looked his surprise. Muldoon had always been a particularly bloodthirsty soldier. I hope you don't feel the same way about a bayonet. Not at all, sir. A bayonet's an entirely different kettle of fish. It's the sort of tool a man can handle. It's the wee things which throw a man sideways. Alan grinned down at the big Irishman. A bullet's wee enough, isn't it? That's true, sir, but sure, that doesn't matter at all, for you never see them coming, and you never know which one's for you till it hits you, and then it's too late altogether. Alan was still smiling when he got back to the platoon. Men like Muldoon did him good. He rejoined Nash and asked him how the wood clearing was going. I think Jerry must have scampered after the first brush, sir. The borders had cleared up to that wide track over there just before you came. He pointed to a gap in the trees only 200 yards short of the eastern edge of the wood. Alan looked at his watch. It was 10.15. The second lift was due to arrive in 15 minutes. He crawled back a few yards, then getting to his feet, walked over to his headquarter group. Dwyer had his earphones on and neither saw nor heard Bridgman coming. He looked up sharply when Alan touched his shoulder and waved his hand for silence. He switched to transmit and spoke into the set. After a pause, he switched again and pulling his earphones back till they dropped round his neck, he looked up at the platoon commander. Major Jordan is not at his headquarters, sir, but the message is from him. The wood has been reported cleared by the border regiment. He handed Bridgman a sheet from his message pad. Calling Bilting, Bridgman rejoined Nash. Lying at the sergeant's side, he made a careful appraisal of the situation as he knew it. The wood behind them, and all to the north of them, for a distance of about four miles, was reasonably secure. 
There might have been some infiltration by snipers and small groups of Germans, but he thought it unlikely that any considerable body of the enemy had made its way into the area, held by the air landing brigade and divisional troops. To the east, towards Oosterbeek and Arnhem, the Germans would be more than occupied in their battle with 1st Parachute Brigade and the 2nd South Staffs. Three companies of the Border Regiment were in position to the west, on a line running south from the railway to the village of Renkum, resting on the north bank of the Nader Rhine, and the remaining company had cleared the wood 200 yards to the south of him, from which he had been fired on earlier in the morning. He wondered where this company was now, and wished he knew for sure. Nash rolled over onto his side and looked at his watch. Seven minutes to go, sir. I'll get the smoke party ready. Do you think it'll be all right to send a couple of men out into the LZ when we spot the lift? Alan thought for a moment. I'll fire the recognition. Very lights when I see the fighter escort. If there's no reaction to that, send two of them out. If there is, throw the canisters from the wood. Nash slid back and picking up two men from Blake's section, he made his way to the western edge of the long, narrow plantation. Standing in the cover of the trees, he looked out on the broad expanse in front of him at the 2,000 shoots, the odd coloured ones making him think of the pieces of some giant jigsaw waiting to be put together. Bridgman trained his glasses on the sky to the south. The last minutes before a parachute drop or glider landing were always a great strain on the pathfinders. There was the possibility that something might go wrong with the Eureka, that an operator had by accident changed a frequency or that a freak twist in the terrain would in some way mask the beam. He looked at his watch again. It was 10.35. The second lift was already five minutes late. Bilting nudged him. There, sir. I can see aircraft straight ahead. Alan swung his glasses up to his eyes, adjusting them hastily to focus the faint dots pointed out by Bilting. He counted them quickly. There were between 20 and 30, and none were line astern. They were not tug aircraft and gliders, and there were too few to be the Dakotas, carrying the 4th Parachute Brigade. He jumped to his feet. It's the fighter escort. Here. He fumbled in his pouch. Take the second cartridge. Hand it to me as soon as I've fired the first one. Come on. With Bilting at his heels, Alan trotted out into the open. They ran for a hundred yards until they were midway between the two woods, taking a quick look at Manning. He was dead. They halted parallel with the dung heap and only about thirty yards to the east of it. The fighters were much nearer now and Alan raised the very light pistol and fired the first shot. He snatched the second cartridge from Bilting's hand and inserted it, fired again and watched the lights burst red over green against the sky. Bilting was tugging at his arm and shouting something about the signallers. Alan tore his eyes away from the approaching fighters and looked towards the dung heap. One of the signallers was standing up, only his legs out of sight in the foxhole. There's no triggering, sir. They can't have picked us up yet. The set's working all right. Alan stood staring back at the signallers, his brain racing as he calculated distance and time. The Eureka could pick up their planes at a distance of 50 to 60 miles and would receive a reception signal from the Rebecca equipment in the aircraft, the triggering referred to by the signaller. The planes must still be at least 10 minutes flying time away. He had started to move over to the Eureka operators when Bilting grabbed his arm and shouted, Jesus Christ, they're not ours. They're Messerschmitts. Alan swung round. The fighters had wheeled to the west, preparatory to strafing the landing zones. He could see the black crosses marked clearly on the fuselage. The hundred yards back to the wood might have been a hundred miles. <laughs>